So you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We uh, have been in the book of 1 Corinthians for quite a while. It's leading us into some really interesting uh, places. And, uh, and today is going to be one of those passages that it's just um, it's a challenging passage. It's one that uh, requires us to think. And so I wanted to frame it up a little bit as we, as we dig into it. It's, it's the kind of passage that uh, nobody would be like, hey, I have an opportunity to just preach a free sermon. I'm going to pick 1 Corinthians 11. Like, that's, this is not easy sledding, right? But I want to get into a little pretext uh, just so, so we can set it up. Uh, as we talked last week, uh, we talked about this idea that, that God has, uh, has designed us and created us and made us to walk along this path of life that he has created for us. And so, so he's created us in a way to, to walk with him in relationship to him and obedience to him in a way that we can experience purpose and assurance and peace and blessing and joy. And as long as we're walking on that path with God, that we experience all those things that he made for us because we're working in the way that he made us to function. Uh, the problem is that every single one of us uh, takes detours off that. We know what God is calling us to do, and yet our heart wants something else, and we take these detours, and we call those detours sin. And uh, sin is just leaving that path. Sometimes it's with good motivations. Sometimes we know it's wrong motivations. But whatever it is, when we leave the path, uh, we enter into sin. And, and then uh, when we reach a point where we're at the end of ourselves, when we know that we can't get there where we want to go on our own, that's when we come to realize our need for Jesus. And Jesus comes and says, I am the way to bring you back to the path of life. You can't do it on your own. You can't find your way back to the path once you've departed from it. The only way to get back is for me to bring you back to the path. Um, and, and so once we have that, once we've been restored to the path, then we have freedom. We've been freed from the shackles of sin, but we want to use that freedom to walk in obedience to God. Once we know the truth, once we have that freedom, why would we want to walk off the path, right? Uh, and so we, we unpacked that. You can listen. It was a fantastic sermon that I preached last week, and you can go back and listen to it, and, uh, and uh, you will be blessed, right? But um, I don't do much self-promotion, so it's really shocking when I do it, right? Um, but the reason I say this is that if, if we realize that, if we're, if we're thinking about it in that way, and we realize that we're uh, broken by sin. We're made in the image of God. We're, we're capable of doing amazing, beautiful, wonderful things. We're his creation. He loves us. He values us. Um, but we also recognize that, that we're born with this tendency towards sin, and it leads us astray. And so we should expect that along this path that God has laid out for us, there's going to be some things that, that, that strike us a little bit sideways, right? That, that, that aren't our natural inclinations. When we, when we look into the Bible and we're saying, God, I want you to show me your path, we should expect to find some things here that on first read we're kind of like, whoa, whoa, what? Right? Because if, if the Bible just said everything that our heart desires and if the Bible was perfectly aligned with our natural ways and inclinations, then it wouldn't have been the book that reveals the perfect God. Right? Because, because, our, because our hearts are corrupted. And so, so we should expect when we read the Bible not just to, to hear an affirmation of all the things that we already believe, but we should expect to read some things that are going to challenge us. To give you an example, uh, many of you have, have read in the Bible where there's this call to forgiveness in many different places, in many different passages, right? Now, most of us, and maybe you're wired differently than me, but my heart's inclination is towards revenge, right? <laughs> like, if somebody does wrong to me, uh, I want to return wrongs to them. We've got a, you know, a son who's not quite two years old. If you take his toy, he's going to, to take it back from you. And, and sometimes when Trina and I, um, we, if we tell him no, we don't even discipline him, right? We just like, when, don't do that. He'll like look at us and he'll go, and just hit whatever around him. And it's like in his mind, he's like, this is you, right? Like, that's, that's what we're born with. That's what we're working with, right? And so this idea of forgiveness is really foreign. That's like, uh, it's like, but 
for those of us that have, have, have pursued it and said, you know what, God, I'm going to try it your way, and we've walked and we've pursued reconciliation and we've pursued forgiveness, what we find is that even though it's not our natural inclination of our heart, it is the right way, that God has proven that he is faithful. And, and the more that I've walked along the path and as I seek to successfully abide by what God has laid out in his word, the more that I find it resonates that what God says is true. And so, so we come as a, as a church— it's our, it's our belief and our understanding that this is God's word, that the Bible is the word of God. It's written by all these different authors over all these different centuries in different languages, in different contexts, uh, people that were very skilled, people that were unschooled. They wrote this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that when you read it, there's this, this flow that goes through the whole thing, that it tells this one cohesive story of God's loving creation of, of everything that we see, including us, of our rebellion against him, and then God's plan to restore us, ultimately coming to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And the Bible even goes into the future, and it tells us about what it will be like when Jesus comes at the end to ultimately fully restore his creation back to himself. And so, so we look at this book, and we say, uh, this book shows us the path that God has laid out for us. This, this is authority over us that we come under the authority of this book. And so I don't want to belabor the point, but I just want you to understand that, that that's where we're coming from because the problem is that if you only choose the parts that you like and you disregard parts that you don't like, then who's an authority? You're an authority over the book, right? So you're standing there as the editor saying, all right, let's cut that part, right? And so that assumes a knowledge for you um, that is greater than what God has revealed in his scripture. And so that's a dangerous place, and that's a dangerous uh, thought to think. So what we have to do is when we come to really hard passages, we have to wrestle through them. We have to say, God, I know this is true. It's in your word. I know you put it here for a reason, and, and help me to understand it. Help me to understand how to apply it. Hopefully you're uh, appropriately afraid, and now we're going to jump into the passage, right? Um, so First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, uh, last week we, we hit verse 1, so we're going to pick up in verse 2, and it says, uh, Now I commend you uh, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, then let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, let me say right off the bat, I don't expect anyone to walk out of here today and change your hairstyle, <laughs> change your fashion sense, right? That's, that's what we're going to talk about today, that this is not a passage about fashion. It's not about how you wear your hair. 
Um, it's, it's, it's a passage ultimately about some really deep and powerful things uh, that we're going to get into. Um, but, uh, but the key is to take this cultural issue, to understand what was happening in the culture there, what is it that God was trying to say, and then what are the deeper truths that lie under it. Uh, tomorrow we're going to celebrate uh, Martin Luther King uh, Jr., uh, celebrate his legacy, and, and, um, and to remember all that he did. And I think what he did that was really powerful was that he took the timeless truths of Scripture— and he applied them into what was happening right in front of him in his country during the civil rights movement. And so that's where the lasting power came that, that the message of Martin Luther King still resonates today is because he was able to tie the timeless truths of Scripture and what God desires for us to live in unity, to live in peace, to live in equality, that there would be no racial divisions, that there would be no second-class citizens, that all people would be valued. Like those are biblical principles that he was able to bring in to that situation in powerful ways, and that's why it still resonates today. And that's really what we want to do today. We want to say, God, what are the powerful principles that you have in your word here in this passage that, that relate to what we're doing uh, today? And so the first thing that we need to do is to understand what was the context into which he was writing when he wrote this. And so, um, and, and appreciate, uh, there's no People magazine uh, from back in this time, right? We can't go back and say who wore it better, right? We can't see all the fashion trends, and there's no BuzzFeed, right? So, so what we have is we have uh, some artwork, some statues. There's some historical records, but a lot of times historians weren't, weren't really worried about recording, like, what was happening in, in fashion, right? But, but what we know from the pieces that we have uh, in antiquity is that in Corinth at this time, it was common for all women— Hebrew, Greek, Roman, Christian, doesn't matter, like all of them, um, they, when they were out in public, they would have their heads covered. That was, that was the commonplace practice at this time. Um, and in fact, the, the only women that weren't wearing head coverings uh, were these high society mistresses that were with these, like, uh, the elite of the culture. There was these women that they had uh, along with their wives, and I won't go into more than that because we got kids in here. But um, so, right, so, so they did it. Uh, some of the cultic prostitutes would not w- wear these things. Um, uh, but otherwise, every sort of respectable woman was wearing a head covering when she was out in public. And so that was, that was, the, that was the, the common place practice at that time. And so uh, the issue ultimately uh, was one of modesty. The question was, um, was uh, uh, really, like, you know, like the 1920s bathing suit thing, right? Like where they used to wear like the full body bathing suits. And if you could see a woman's like elbows, it was scandalous, right? And they were like, the guys are like, whoa, that's so attractive. I can see her elbow, right? Like uh, it was just a different cultural time, right? Um, and, and so in the same sense, at this time, when a woman would let her hair down, hanging onto her shoulders, that, uh, that men saw that, and they were like, it was very produ- provocative. It was alluring. It was one of these things that was, like, scandalous. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, like, to, I ran a bunch of uh, common today comparisons off of Trina, and she's like, don't use any of those. So I'm not going to, but <laughs> that's why it's good to bounce things off your wife, right? But the idea is that they saw this, and they're like, it was like, it, it basically was a distraction for the men in the church. They saw this, and they're like, whoa, this lady is, like, putting her hair on display. Like, <laughs> I, mean, I can't focus on what's happening, right? So that was really what the issue was. was. And um, we don't know why the women were doing this. Some commentators, uh, some, and it's interesting when you read these books, they get kind of creative. So, some, so they think that they were so in the spirit and worship and stuff that it just accidentally fell off, and then they just left it off. I mean, I have a hard time buying into that, personally. I think— we've been reading this letter to the Corinthians, there was a lot of exploration of freedom uh, in their culture. 
And, and Paul is essentially writing this letter over and over again and saying, yes, you have all this freedom, but use your freedom for good. Don't use your freedom in a way that hinders other people. And so the ladies, when they came into this church gathering, said, hey, this is my church family. This is the people of God. Like, I can be at home here just like I am at my home, and, and I can take my hair down, and I can just be myself, and I don't have to have these hindrances of our society. And, and Paul's saying, I understand you've got the freedom. And yeah, there, there's freedom, but, but you need to use your freedom with wisdom. And, and there's some other principles that are at play here. So the question, so the solution that ultimately that, that Paul offers is this. He says that women should only pray and prophesy when they're gathered with the church with their head coverings on. He said, hey, the solution's pretty simple. He didn't, he didn't say stop prophesying and praying. He didn't say uh, go away. He just said, he said, hey, when you do it, out of respect for the other people there, just like keep your head covering on. It's, 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 a, it's a matter of respect, right? So that was the solution he'd offered. The question is, should we apply this rule literally today? As we read this passage, should we start trying to do and, and apply all the things that it says there? Now, obviously, if you look around the room, obviously not, right? So um, uh, th- there's some groups like the Amish and the Mennonite and some other groups that if you go, they'll still wear the, uh, the head coverings, and it's, that's directly tied to this passage, and so they've carried that, that tradition forward. But the thing is, when you go out to Lancaster County and you're buying some ice cream at the ice cream shop and the girl has a head covering, you're not thinking like, oh, good, finally one modest woman in this world full of <laughs> all these harlots, that are right? What you're thinking is, it's like, oh, she must have a very, like, specific religious belief that is outside of the mainstream of what most people believe. Like, that's, that's kind of what people think. They don't understand it. They, they're not sure what it is. Um, they might think that she's um, uh, oppressed. You know, who knows what, what, uh, what the connotations. So the connotations for today don't transport back to that time. It's, it's, it's a different understanding. Uh, let me say, you know, today, obviously, I mean, you think about the most manly men you know. It's like Aquaman, Thor. Right, they all got long hair. So, so if you're here and you're a guy with long hair, you don't have to. Don't, don't. Yeah, I mean, let it flow, man. That's it's cool. <laughs> right? If, if the girls cut their hair short, do whatever. Like, that's not what this passage is about, right? This passage is about honoring the things uh, that God has laid out before you. That, that we're not called to judge on appearance, but it says that God judges the inward person. So I really want to make sure that, that you guys get I don't want anybody to walk out of here with this sort of legalistic thing of like, man, I never read that passage. I need to start doing it. Freddie, keep the hat on. You're the only guy that can rock it in here like that. It's amazing. You look awesome. Don't take it off, okay? You don't have to uncover your head. Um, and so, but it is the tradition where um, I remember one time I went up into New York City and, uh, and I was going and touring one of the cathedrals. And as I walked in, one of the ushers came and like grabbed me. And he was like, hey, take your hat off, right? Like there's this thing of uh, some of these things still carry into our tradition. That's why a lot of guys, when they pray, they'll take their hats off, right? Like it all ties back into this passage. And so there's this carry forward that we don't necessarily even understand where it comes from, but, but it still applies to the society. Um, so I would argue that this was related to the culture at the time and the truths that underline it, we need, we need to apply today, but the actual specific practice, we don't. Now, there's a danger in this because sometimes people will use that, that was the culture at that time thing to get out of anything, right? So, yeah, it was wrong to murder back then, but that was a different time. Now it's totally fine, right? Or, or whatever. I, I use the extreme example, but people can kind of use this as a get-out-of-jail card if there's any passage that they don't like. They just say, well, that was the culture. That's what they did in that culture, but, but we're not bound by that anymore. And so I want to encourage you as you read your Bible to be very discerning about that. It comes back to the thing that we talked about at the beginning. The path is going to have some unexpected things, and we're called to wrestle through them. And even something like this that we should wrestle through and say, like, hey, no, like, am I called to, to, to abide by this or not? 
So let's look at some of these deeper truths that I think that this passage is pointing to that are very relevant and that we do really need to think about how they apply into our life. The first one, as I've already mentioned, talks about freedom. We've been given freedom in Christ, but Paul said over and over again in this letter that we should use that freedom for the blessing and benefit of others, not selfishly. Ladies, there's a lot of freedom in what you can wear in our society today, like a lot of freedom, right? But you have the personal responsibility to say, like, hey, how much, uh, you know, just because I can, does that mean that I should? Right? Just because it's culturally acceptable, just because everybody's posting it online and doing it this way, does that mean I need to follow that trend? Or is that something that is potentially going to cause uh, a negative reaction, a negative relationship? Guys, you know, we, we have to think about as, as what are the things that we're, we're doing from the society. We have, we have all this freedom, things that we watch, things that, places that we go, things that we do, people that we hang out with. The continual question is, are we using our freedom to, to build up and to bless and to benefit? Parents, if you have kids in your home, you have a lot of freedom. You have way more freedom than your kids have. But the question is, how much do you want to expose them to? There may be things that are totally fine for you to do, but you may choose to withhold yourself from that freedom because you don't want to set a negative example for your kids before they're ready to really think through and embrace it, right? So, so freedom is the first thing that I think is a timeless, a timeless category that we always have to think about, and this is ultimately talking about freedom. The second thing that, that he's talking about here is really this idea of, of a created gender distinction, in this passage, Paul references back to the, the Genesis creation account when he talks about man, uh, woman coming from man, and, and woman being created for man. And he, and, and he points back to this thing that in Genesis, God says uh, in the beginning he makes Adam, and everything in his creation is good, um, but ultimately he says, hey, there's one thing that's not good. It's not good for Adam to be alone. He's lacking something. And so he took a rib from Adam, and he made Eve, and Eve came to fulfill what was lacking in Adam. And it goes on to say that he created them, men and women, in his image. Uh, that, that, that man and woman are both created in the image of God, but were created uniquely. We're created distinctly. We didn't come out of the same mold. We don't have uh, all the same characteristics, right? Um, I use this example, and it's, and it's dumb, but I'll keep going back to it, right? Like, I may want to bear a child and carry it for nine months and give birth to it, but that is not something that God has given me the ability to do, and I also don't want to do it. But, <laughs> right, it's an obvious distinction in our createdness, in the, in the way that I was created as a man. Um, and so something that we have to wrestle through, we're, you know, we're, we are created with, with a gender, with male and female. There's specific giftings, blessings, roles, and expectations that come with that. And so in a society that's moving more and more towards this understanding of gender as this sort of fluid scale and gender as, as something that you choose when you get to an age where you decide which one you want, it, it pushes against the very essence of creation, right? That, that ultimately um, the Bible makes it pretty clear that you don't get to choose your gender. You can choose a lot of things. You can choose to change your hair color. You can choose where you want to live. You can choose to change your name. You can choose a lot of things. But, but there's a few things that are assigned to you at birth that come from God, and they come with expectations and distinctions and roles, and, and we don't have the right to reject those or, or, or to push them away. 
God has given you specific blessings and expectations that are based on your, your gender. And that flows into the next thing that we want to talk about, which is uh, this other thing that, that is all over this passage, which is this idea of biblical headship. Um, now, one of the reasons that this passage is, is tricky to interpret is a lot of the Greek words that they use in here can be interpreted and are interpreted in different ways in different parts of Scripture and in different ancient texts. And so this word that's translated as head, um, it can literally mean like a head, like on your body, your head. Uh, it can mean like the source, like the head of a river is like where the river flows, you know, the beginning of the river. Um, or it can relate to uh, a head being in authority over. And so when this word is used, um, different, uh, I, wrote a, I read a bunch of different books this week, and some of them tried to make an argument for, hey, if you think about it as being the source, that man is the, God is the source of Christ, and Christ is the source of man, and man is the source of woman, and they, and they, and they talk about that. Um, Ultimately, I didn't find those, those arguments as compelling as, as the, the orthodox view, which is that, that this relates to authority. And it's the same word that's used in Ephesians 5, and I know I'm getting deep in here with you guys, right? But we talk about Ephesians 5, yeah, it's the, it's the passage that uh, they read at weddings a lot of times, and, and people always raise their eyes because it says, wives, submit to your husbands, and people are like, whoa. And uh, I remember I was doing a wedding one time, and the, the bridal parties are like, so are you going to submit to your husband? Like kind of joking around, like, like, oh, that's so antiquated, right? But, um, but in the Bible, it talks about that the husbands are supposed to love their wives the way that Christ loves the church, sacrificially, to give themselves, to lead well, and that, that the wives are called um, to encourage and help and to submit that, to that sort of leadership. Now, it doesn't say anywhere, men, subjugate your wives to yourself and force them to follow you. There's no command to do that anywhere, right? But, but what it says is, it says, husbands, be a good leader, lead the way that Christ leads, follow that example, and if you do that, your wife should want to, uh, to follow your leadership. I was reading or I was listening to a sermon from Tim Keller this week. He's a famous pastor. He has a church, a big, huge church, a Redeemer Church up in New York City, very influential. Uh, at one point, he was here in this area, and uh, he and his wife were wrestling through whether they should take this call to move to New York City. And, and they had weighed the pros and cons and talked about it a lot. And ultimately, she was leaning towards she didn't want to go, and he was leaning towards wanting to do it. And so he, he looked at her and he said, hey, listen, you decide. Ultimately, I'll do whatever you want to do. And she looked at him and she's like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> she's like, don't put that on me. She's like, that's your responsibility. She's like, essentially said, man up, right? <laughs> like, this, neither of these things are disobedient to God. We're trying to discern God's will. There's no obvious sin, and, but this is ultimately a choice that we have to make for our family. We've tried to work through it together. But ultimately, uh, you need to make this decision. And I'll stand by you, but you also need to own the consequences of the decision if it's a bad decision. <laughs> and, and I can tell you, ladies, speaking as a, 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 an advocate for the men, there's a lot of times we would rather not have that responsibility, right? We would rather uh, say, like, hey, you just do whatever you want, and I'll, I'll follow, right? Like, there's a lot of times that feels like the easier path to us because uh, guys like to get out of work sometimes, right? <laughs> but, um, and we don't, or maybe we like making decisions, but we don't like the consequences. But, but God designs a marriage— in a way so that it should be two people lovingly submitting to one another, giving up what they desire for the benefit of the other, working as a team, uh, but, but in a relationship of two, there has to be a tiebreaker, and God says ultimately when there's a tiebreaker, ultimately the man needs to own the responsibility for making the decision and owning the consequences of that decision. And, and so God leads us in that direction. And so that way, the way that that word head is used in Ephesians 5 is the same way that it's used in this passage. But I love what he does. He says, hey, uh, that, that man is the head of woman in the same way that, um, that God is the head of Christ. So God the Father 
has a relationship of headship over Jesus, right? They're both equally God, fully God, not diminished in any way. There's no hierarchy within the Trinity, but it's the role of God the Father to send the Son, and it's the role of the Son to go in, in obedience to the Father and to come. And, and, and what I love about it is that that in no way diminishes the dignity of Jesus. It doesn't demean him. It doesn't make him less. In fact, what it says in Philippians is that, that it makes him greater. Look at, listen to what it says in Philippians 2.5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was equal with God, but he didn't hold on to it. Verse 7, but rather, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that willing submission, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know how it works out in your situation. I don't know what your background is. I don't know what your relationships are like. But I want you to grab a hold of today that this idea that um, Jesus taking the role of being under the headship of God the Father actually was the thing that, that, that glorified him, that revealed his glory. And the same can be true in our relationships if we function in the way, in the role that we're meant to carry. Along with biblical headship, the other thing that I see here, the fourth and final thing, is is equality without equivalence. We can be equal without being the same, right? In verse 11, it says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. I don't think I ever really thought through this until I was working on this passage this week, but, but essentially, the first woman, Eve, was taken out of Adam's body as a rib, and, and she was formed into Every one born after that was taken out of a woman's body, right? So he says there's this, this, this symmetry, there's, there's this complementarianism, right? There's this, uh, that the first woman came out of man, and then every man and woman since then has come out of woman, and so we are interdependent on one another, and all of it comes from God. And so Paul really works to, to, to deconstruct any sort of hierarchical thinking that this might lead us to grab a hold of. Um, what we call this today is biblical complementarianism, and that's the view that we hold here at Riverside. It's the idea that men and women are equal in dignity, worth, and value. Both are created in the image of God. Both are unique and distinct. Both have roles and talents and, and abilities and giftings to use. Uh, but there is a distinction that we're not the same and that our roles are not necessarily meant to be identical even though our worth and value is equal. Uh, to point this out, uh, there's an there's a, a author named Carol Gillikin who wrote a book called A Different Voice. And in that, um, after doing a bunch of research and looking at these differences between men and women, one of the interesting ones that she pointed out was this idea that women see themselves as maturing as they move towards interdependence. And so women feel like they're becoming more and more mature the more that they know how to work together as a team, to build consensus, to build meaningful, lasting relationships, to build community. That, that, that's how women tend to think of themselves as maturing. Men, on the other hand, tend to think of themselves as maturing the more that they become independent. The more that a man can say, I don't need anybody else, I can do it all myself, 
we tend to think that that is a sign of our maturity. And these things flow back to this, this, this sort of uh, in, gifting that God has put within us, that a man is called to lead, and so there's this natural desire to lead and to, and, to, and to pioneer and to drive forward, and there's a natural desire in women to cultivate and create community and, 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 and interdependence. But the problem is that sin comes in and corrupts it. And so for women, it corrupts interdependence into dependence, where they have to have a man to have significance. They have to have a relationship that they can't function independently, that they, that they have to have that relationship in their life where they feel like they don't have any worth or value. And for men, sin comes in and it, and it corrupts uh, independence into autonomy, inaccountability, and tyranny. Sin takes these, these things that God has put in us that are meant to be complementary, to work together, to, to help each other, and sin corrupts it so that they drive us away from each other. But that's not the way that God wants it to be. And so if you're here today and you're struggling with, um, with, with issues between men and women, roles of men and women in society, let me just say and acknowledge that historically, uh, the church and culture in general has erred on the side of creating this artificial hierarchy between men and women and putting men above women. And women have had to, to fight hard to get to the place that, that God would want them to be, where they are viewed as equal in worth and value. I mean, at one point, women couldn't vote in this country, right? Like, there's, there's all these crazy, crazy historical things. All those things is good progress, and any religious group or, or, or viewer or whatever that stood in the way of that was wrong, right? But in this move towards understanding true equality between men and women, we can't throw out the idea of male headship with the bathwater, right? We, we can't say, all right, God, we're just going to reject. It's the same thing, uh, this, this picture. He says, hey, you have freedom. You can let your hair down at home and stuff. And, and even at church, you can let your hair down. But, but I want to encourage you not to do that. Don't exercise your freedom in a way that, that harms others. There's a way as a church that we have to be able to value the dignity and worth and giftings and contribution of men and women equally and in powerful ways, but also acknowledge the roles that God has created for each one of us in unique ways the unique way that he's created each one of us. It's, um, there's nothing worse than trying really hard to be somebody else, right? You know, to spend your whole life striving to be something that you were, you, you were never created to be. The best thing is to figure out how to be the ultimate and, and best version of yourself, the way that God designed you. And so there will never be ultimate satisfaction in striving to take uh, the role, uh, the position of, of someone else. And so that's a diversion off of the path that God has for you. He has you as a man or as a woman in here to figure out how to live fully within that identity that you've been given. And here's the interesting thing. In this passage, we see women praying and prophesying along with the men in the church. And for those that had come from the Hebrew tradition, this was a radical departure because in, in the synagogue, the men and the women worshiped completely separately. There was literally a dividing wall that kept them apart from one another. And so now in the Christian church, they're in the room together, they're worshiping, they're praying, they're prophesying together. And it was an incredible uh, progressive forward step in, in, in equality. Where, where Paul says, hey, there's no distinction, male or female, uh, slave or free, uh, Greek, Jew, right? Like we're all one in Christ. And it's, so it's an expression of that. But he says that with that freedom, with that expression, it doesn't mean that we abandon the uniqueness in the way that God created us. And so in a couple weeks, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 14, uh, which is going to talk more about men's and women's roles in the church and, and how that's all supposed to function. So you have to come back for that one. Um, but what I want you to see today, and I know this was a, a kind of a, a heavy sermon. It required a little bit of extra thinking. I couldn't tell as many jokes as I wanted to. 
Um, but what it does, I hope, is, is lays out a template, not just for this passage, but for all of Scripture. How do we read it and see, all right, God, what, what's happening here? And is this a direct command that I just need to ab- uh, apply into my life and obey? Or, or is this something that, that had relevance there? And, and does the relevance look a little bit different today? But the timeless truth that God embeds in these passages is powerful. And that's how we need to live our lives if we want to find that purpose, that peace, that assurance, that hope that God has for us. Let me encourage you. Like I said, there's volumes and volumes of books written on this passage. If it's something that's caught your interest, I'd encourage you to dig in. I can point you in some right directions. I would love to engage in further discussion if we, if we want to continue to, to do it. Ultimately, our goal is to be as biblical and faithful as we can, uh, to, to honor God in the way that we serve him here in this church and in our marriages and in our, in our relationships, uh, single people, married people, that, that we all can come together and, and do something that looks like the kingdom of God here in this church that's so different from the world around us. And by his grace, we can do it. Would you join me in prayer?